0: I say the future of AI and the law does not pit lawyers versus robots. And the future is lawyers versus uh, lawyers plus robots.
1: Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. This interview is with Kevin Miller, the CEO of Legal Sifter. Legal Sifter is building an artificial intelligence that will help any business manage their documents and contracts we had a great conversation about the technology that is being used by Legal Sifter, the implications of artificial intelligence and whether it's replacing humans or augmenting their abilities and also Kevin's story of coming in to be a professional CEO for a company that was founded by three college students. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm really thankful to Kevin for giving us so much of his time. So please enjoy this conversation with Kevin Miller. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I want to start off at Legal Sifter is a very exciting idea. I'm going to do, I'm going to absolutely butcher it if I try to package exactly what you guys are doing. So I'm going to put that, that ball in your court. What is Legal Scepter?
0: Well, we built a product that reads contracts and gives advice. And, you know, a contract is the most important, most prolifically used document in the world. And they're a pain. They're hard to read. They're hard to negotiate. And we've built a piece of software that uses artificial intelligence that Gives you a review of that contract, tells you what to think about, tells you how to keep yourself safe.
1: And part of the reason that that's possible, and this is my ignorant outsider perspective, is that for, you know, maybe it's the 80-20 principle. I don't know exactly what the proportion is. A lot of that is relatively repetitive within certain basic templates or types of contracts where you're looking at the same thing and there's maybe a couple subtle tweaks and nuances but a lot of the meat and potatoes of it between contracts is relatively similar is that a, is that a fair assessment of why that's possible or how how is it even possible for someone to read or a, a machine to read a contract that was written by a human
0: I think that's roughly right you know millions of people around the world read contracts every day read millions of contracts every day and many of the concepts in a contract regardless of the subject matter appear over and over and over again. So to your point that 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 makes for a great opportunity for a machine to do a little bit of that work. And that is the primary reason from a subject matter perspective. Technically, you know the ideas behind the technology that we've been working with have been around for decades, but what makes this possible today are the increased processing power that exists to us so easily these days as well as the extraordinarily low cost of database storage that's available available to us in the cloud so you know, the know, technolo- the technology infrastructure is now available to all of us to allow us to create a product like this.
1: One of the books that I reference the most is called The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly, who was the founding editor of Wired. And he talks about these different technological forces that if you can embrace them, if you can anticipate them, it's just going to make your work over the next few decades a lot easier. And one of those is the prevalence of artificial intelligences with very specific specializations. Um, and his h- His point is really that you need to reframe AI as something that just straight up replaces human beings and makes them obsolete, which is kind of the scary media headline versus this augmentative, what's, I don't know what the right word for that is, um, tool that allows the worker to be more efficient more productive um, and just make better use of their time is that how you're positioning and selling the services of legal sifter how does that kind of balance out
0: when i talk in public about legal sifter i tell people particularly the attorneys in the room i say the future of ai and the law does not pit lawyers versus robots and the future is lawyers versus uh, lawyers plus robots You know, in the not too distant future i don't want to buy an attorney who doesn't have AI looking over his or her shoulder? I mean, why wouldn't you? Yet, the nature of an attorney's job, the empathy required, the the, the confluence of analysis that's required is beyond any technology that exists on the planet today. Uh, so, what is possible is that attorneys can use uh, pieces of artificial intelligence like little helpers, and uh, and they're going to supplement you know their existing workflow with tools that were never before possible. You know, lawyers think and read and write for a living, and they get a lot of grief for not adopting technology, but the truth is they haven't had technology that thinks and reads and writes for a living, and AI does a little bit of that. And so what's what's gonna happen, and what is happening with Legal Sifter, is we figured out a way to create little uh, pieces of software that augments or supplements a, a lawyer and makes them a better attorney. Um, and that's supportive uh, to people who are attorneys, and that's helpful for people who wish they could access you know cheaper, faster, better attorneys. So again, you know, the the future for us is not lawyer versus robot; it's lawyer versus lawyer plus robot.
1: Now, you started that little anecdote by saying, "In public, in private, are you like Travis ah, Kalanick who wants to replace them all?" Yeah, no, no,
0: all? no. I, I, that wasn't. I didn't <laughs> didn't mean to. No, it's the same story. Now, that doesn't mean, um, and I'm not a, a broad expert on artificial intelligence per se. It doesn't mean that there aren't Job categories that enormous are are at enormous risk in the short and medium term because of the efficiencies and improvements gain, uh, um, generated by artificial intelligence, but the legal field isn't isn't one of those fields.
1: Gotcha. Now switching lanes a little bit, the story of how you got to Legal Sifter is definitely uh, distinct from the maybe prototypical entrepreneurial or startup journey. Can you talk a little bit about? Legal Sifter's origins in 2013, 2014, and how you joined the company in 2015.
0: Legal Sifter was born uh, originally out of Carnegie Mellon University and supported by a, a venture capital group here in Pittsburgh, and still supported to this day called Birchmere Ventures. And one of their partners, uh, Sean Amorati, got together with, at the time, three folks out of Carnegie Mellon and. You now they had a, a pretty straightforward hypothesis and that was, you know, natural language processing and machine learning, you know, two technologies with the umbrella within the umbrella of artificial intelligence. Natural language processing and machine learning have arrived in 2013. They're available, they're affordable, and you can package them up to solve problems and they're going to over time automate routine cognitive tasks. One well, and there's a whole bunch of routine cognitive tasks in the legal space. So why don't you guys go figure something out? And, and they did. Um, a year later, uh, they were down to two of the original three co-founders. And in August of 14, they built a product uh, that read contracts and gave advice. They called it the Freelancer Scorecard. And they built a product for freelance software developers who never take their contracts to attorneys because they can't afford them. And our team said, hey, upload your contract. We'll give you some advice, and and you'll be able to protect yourself. And they got 4,000 people to use the product in about a week. Wow. I know. And um, and then they put it on the shelf. They weren't quite, quite ready for a lot of reasons uh, to make the product commercially viable. They didn't um, advertise it. They didn't uh, sell it. And they went through some leadership changes, and they... Uh, in 2015 the the head of uh, one of the, the partner at, at Birchmere Ventures Sean Amirondi, stepped in as the interim CEO and I had heard about the business in in the summer of 14 about that time and frankly it went in one year and out the other I, I, I wasn't I wasn't particularly interested and, and I, I didn't really understand in the summer of 15 uh, I was currently the uh, at the time I was the chief operating officer of a Pittsburgh- based Global safety company called Industrial Scientific. It was a couple hundred million dollar business at the time, hardware, software, and service. And we also had machine learning algorithms that predicted injuries in the workplace um, in the safety business. So I was familiar with the technology. And, um, but I was, this, I was the COO of, a, of multiple hundreds of folks, and I had spent a lot of time in and around the problems uh, caused by contracts. Uh, this has nothing of my, my long-term background, where I spent six years, uh, nearly six years here in Pittsburgh at a company called Free Markets that eventually became Ariba, that is now part of SAP, and that's a sourcing and procurement company. And I'm also a licensed attorney. And so I, I just understand a lot of the challenges posed by, by contracts on the supply chain side and the buy side. And anyway, in, in the summer of 15, I heard about this business again uh, from Sean Amirati at, at Birchmere. And at the time, I had I had begun a search. I, I knew I wanted to move on to something else after nine really very fortunate years at Industrial Scientific. I knew I was likely to leave in the next six to 12 months. And he told me that story again. And this time I really listened. And I said, wow, that's that's a thing. And uh, eventually, after a month or two of talking to Sean and others, uh, I decided to jump in. And and partly because I had been part of uh, the free markets experience, which, you know, if you know that story in Pittsburgh, that, that company went public. We grew from you know, nothing to $150, 160000000 million in revenue in, in a couple of years, and really was an explosive experience and transformative for me. So I've always been seeking that experience.
1: And the free market story itself is is one of the very few big tech IPOs of right. Pittsburgh. So that's historical.
0: That's right. I actually interviewed uh, with free markets in 99 the day before they went public. So in that year, when I was there, we went from 300 to 1000 people. And that's just has a formative impression on on your career. And I was I was just getting out of business school at the time. I have an MBA and I after I'd gone to law school and and for me that was my first full-time work experience and to have that kind of experience was just like wow well, wow I want that again and uh, I had a good experience there I had a great experience at uh, EDMC uh, here in town where I helped build an online university and then I had a terrific experience in industrial scientific where we where we grew grew a business uh, fairly radically over an eight or nine year period. And in all cases, in those three, three uh, job experiences, I was with organizations that had a broader purpose, had a great culture, and had a transformative technology uh, for a specific industry. And Sifter offers offered all of that again. And, and one last anecdote, you know, frankly, the, the family that ran Industrial Scientific, the McElhatton family, it's a terrific family here in Pittsburgh. They're really good to me. You know, they were, you know, at times they were after me and they said, you know what, you should do a startup. And, uh, you know, I would always laugh and say, well, you know, I never planned to travel the world. I never planned to have four kids. And I certainly as heck was never going to do a startup, but, but here I am. And I'm here because of the promise of LegalSifter, you know, the chance to you know read contracts and, and give advice using machine, machine learning and natural language processing using AI that's a precursor to a broader purpose which says gosh that if I, if we can figure this out in this little n- nugget of, of the law on contracts, then there's a path to doing this across the legal profession and and ultimately bringing down the cost of legal services without you know without annoying legal without annoying the law firms and and that's what we've kind of figured out and I, and I think that's a pretty big idea
1: so I think one of the parts of the narrative that I'm most curious about, you referenced the law degree, the MBA, mm-hmm. being in one of these seminal startups, at least for for Pittsburgh, and a couple other positions as well, and how this creates optionality for you or right. creates opportunities for you uh, and and how that kind of framing, I don't know how much of a framing you took with each of those choices and the subsequent steps, but not necessarily knowing that, not that this is the end point, but that it would take you to this current point of being the CEO of Legal Sifter. but how did you approach those types of decisions to extend or expand the optionality that you had for future career moves?
0: Yeah, for me... It was, always, um, it was always listening to opportunities that came across my desk and um, selectively, very, very selectively. And, uh, and then when I had those opportunities, doing the job that I was given um, uh, to the best of my ability, and if another opportunity appeared, great. But you know, a lot of times people I, I, I tend to think, well, I don't know, uh, sometimes some people will, will try to plan this out. And they'll, and they might have to, you know, step one, step two, step three. Uh, for me, it's been more organic. You know, I've always had a, a long-term vision. I, I will say this: I've had a long-term vision of saying, you know what? One day, I, I think I want to, I want to lead a company. I think I want to be a, a part of, be, be in that role. I think I'm, I'm well suited for it, and, and I've been training for it my entire life. And, and with each, each step on that journey. You know, each decision I made within those companies, and and as I tr- moved from company to company, because I, I haven't really moved very much, you know, it was always there, there. was always an eye towards that long-term vision, and and really every job for me was another checkpoint. It's it's always been, gosh, am I enjoying this? Is this is this is this something I want to do? Um, is this taking me to a CEO role, and is that something I still think I want to do? And every time I made that decision, every time I was given that opportunity. Yeah, and the answer was always yes. So I just kept going. And in, in, anyway, somebody gave me some really good advice uh, about, uh, gosh, it would have been about 15 years ago. And he said, uh, he was he was an old manager of mine. My, my, his name was Max Schooler. And Max, Max said something to me. He said, you know, it's always interesting to take your next role in a situation where you're building on a proven strength and then expanding that circle to something that's new, as opposed to, uh, you know, if you think about it as a Venn diagram, you know, it's, as opposed to something you know radically different than what you've been doing today, uh, maybe it's it's always. You know, it's always interesting to try to take a role that builds upon your your proven strength and then adds to that. Maybe it's 20%, maybe it's 40%, maybe it's 50%, maybe it's 10%. But that's kind of as opposed to saying, okay, I'm going to take job one and then go to job two, and it's just going to radically, you know, jerk me around in terms of my experience. And I I always thought that kind of building building a career uh, with that sort of mindset was a smart way to go. And so I think that's the other thing that's kind of guided me is every opportunity that's been presented to me, it, you know, it always started with well, we want you to do the thing that you've already kind of proven you can do. And then I want you to build some new skills around these other things. And so that always, it was always a logical next step for me. So it was always on that long-term journey towards a vision of becoming a CEO. That
1: makes sense. What's been unexpected now that you're in the CEO role that mm-hmm. you've maybe been visualizing or thinking about for a while? What's been unexpected?
0: Well, being a startup CEO um, is, 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 is the hardest thing I've ever done. You know, I was I was very very fortunate. In my last job to be CEO of a you know seven hundred a thousand person company and global and traveled the world and had all these good interesting stuff to talk about. But you know the truth is, you know if we made a mistake, if if I made a mistake, if if we made a decision that was was in the wrong direction, we could recover. As a startup CEO, you don't have that kind of luxury. You don't get to take as many swings uh, because you run out of money. And so there's a lot more pressure on a regular basis to get, make sure the decisions are, are more than roughly right. And I think that's different, you know, I think that's different um, because, you know, when you're operating in an environment where the, the product that you're, as we were in our last company, you know, the product was known, the competitors were known, the need was established in the marketplace. And, and largely we were a we were a, a proven market, uh, a mature market, where we were fighting for share with some a, a couple of players. And while that was interesting and challenging, it's very, very different uh, stepping into a, a CEO role of a, of a company trying to uh, impress upon the world that this is technology they should buy when they don't even know how to spell it. And, and that's very, very challenging. There's, there are long education cycles uh, in, in your sales cycles at times. You're constantly inventing and reinventing the right language until you get that, that product market fit. And I think the biggest thing that, that, that weighs on a startup CEO that's a little bit different than than, than most, I think, established company CEOs is you know they just don't have the degrees of freedom and that's challenging Um, you know if you if you make the wrong call you know it could you could run out of cash despite the fact that you have a great product and a a great company great culture uh, building so that's just it's just a different different level of decision making that you have to make and uh, it's not so much that it was surprising back to your original question uh, original question it's just until you've done it it's hard to appreciate
1: what that really means. Gotcha. And there's a degree of getting comfortable with that discomfort that I think is is your own sort of mental game that has to be played. That's right. So you spoke to the cash burn to some degree. Legal Sifters raised about $5 million. That's right. Talk to me a little bit about the conversations as it pertains to raising capital, whether that's with an angel investor or a venture capital firm. AI, machine learning. These are s- such hot, buzzworthy terms right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also the conversation around addressable market size. You, Even in the first way you described legal sifter, you talked about it being the most used document on earth. Mm-hmm. So so there's obviously some orientation that you already have around that. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what those conversations look like? And then also, let, let's just start there. I, I'm getting my wheels spinning on other questions I want to ask.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's super important when you're an early stage company, to be able to express your technology in the context of a real world problem. And the, the easier it is for more people to understand that real world problem, the more likely you are to create an emotional connection with an angel investor, we'll start there, that makes sense to them. And that's true of, of early VCs as well. You know, people wanna understand the story. I don't know Warren Buffett, but I do remember an interview or three that he's constantly saying where he likes to invest in companies he understands. That actually isn't isn't different for an angel investor, or a VC, or Warren Buffett, all the way up. And I think, in, inevitably, people want to understand the problem you're solving with the product that you have. So it's got to start with that pain in the marketplace, or it's got to so- start with an unbelievable opportunity that it just doesn't have to be explained more than once. People need to get this in 30 seconds. If they if they get it in 30 seconds, investors get it in 30 seconds, then they wanna hear two minutes worth. If they get it in two minutes, then they wanna hear 10 minutes. If they wanna hear 10 minutes, they wanna hear an hour. But the truth is, when you're dealing with angel investors, they're gonna make a decision quickly. They're gonna say, you know, do I wanna do this or not? They, they understand, even the ones who are unsophisticated, maybe it's their only angel investor, investment they've ever made, That what they're really buying is an opportunity to participate in an idea that's gonna move around quite a bit. And so it doesn't really matter the details. What matters is, gosh, there's a problem in the marketplace. You understand it, right? And uh, here's here's how we're gonna solve that. Oh, oh, by the way, we use artificial intelligence and that's really cool. As opposed to flipping that around and saying, hey, we're an artificial intelligence company. We do all this co- cool stuff. Do you wanna invest? You know, that's that's not as interesting, right? It's starting with a technology and saying, hey, we're gonna go out and find a bunch of problems. It's harder for an investor to get excited about versus the, the flip side. Hey, there's a big problem out, there, out in the marketplace and here's how our technology uniquely or discreetly solves that problem. So do you wanna get involved? So I think the most important thing for a startup CEO to think about at the seed stage is to make sure that story is interesting, believable, and easy to communicate. And I think that's that's the big problem uh, uh, that many companies face uh, you know getting out of the blocks. Now when you go to raise money later, where we are right now at a series A or for later companies series B, it's less the story is is clearly important, but but at that point you've you've tested a lot of elements of your story and now you should be coming to investors at the series A round after you've raised some capital and this is where we are. And what they're looking for is are they have a checkbox of of items. They're looking for of course, just like the angel investor, they want to believe in leadership, they want to believe in you. Uh, but they but they really want to understand and they want to believe in your culture and your vision But what they want to see is they also want to see performance They want to see growth and they want to understand that if they put money in on this day That someday in the not-too-distant future that money will grow significantly and it's going to grow in a way that everybody understands based on you know deal close uh, uh, closing rates and retention rates and you know, price and cost per sale and cost per lead, they need to see a spreadsheet and they need to understand how the money's gonna move. And um, and and they're looking for that proven product market fit and they might wanna talk to a couple of clients and they're gonna make less of an emotional decision, they're gonna make more of a rational decision. And I think that would be the big differentiating uh, points that I would make for startup CEOs is, when you're early, people are gonna make emotional decisions, they're gonna do it in minutes and you better have your story when you're later in your fundraising, they're going to make the decision based on the numbers, and it's going to be more rational.
1: One of the themes that we've been touching on recently on the show, and just given your experience, um, having been at free markets, having been in the Pittsburgh scene for a little bit of a while, is this narrative that it's hard to find funding in the Pittsburgh ecosystem, and that maybe the mix between fundraising in Western Pennsylvania versus going to a New York, a San Francisco, or just anywhere else to find that capital for your business? Have you found that to be the case? I know that there's kind of a balance of some Pittsburgh money and some outside of Pittsburgh money in legal sifter right now. How are you thinking about that as you approach the capital raise?
0: Yeah, I, I, I think there's some... There are a bunch of red herrings in those stories. I, I, don't, I just don't find them to be as true as people want them to be. And then, and then there's some actual hardcore facts. And so let me try to break that down. When you when you're a, an angel or, or seed stage company in Pittsburgh, you know, for legal sifter, the angel community really stepped up for us. Uh, we did not have and have not had challenges finding angel money in in Western Pennsylvania. Our angels come from Western Pennsylvania. They also come from all over the world. We have angels all over the world, and then we have a couple of institutionals, including Birchmere. And, you know, they invested in the team, they invested in the idea. And I think, you know, if if you've got that idea, it's actually a bit of an advantage inside of Western Pennsylvania because there's a pretty strong network of, uh, relatively strong network of potential angel investors that, you know, it's not too hard to find those folks. And once you find one or two, if you've got a good story, they'll tell every others, and, and, and eventually you'll end up with your round. Uh, we also have uh, things like in Innovation Works, uh, you know, which is I, I believe one of the most most prolific seed investor in the country. They're so pumping them out. Yeah. So I, I actually from an angel and seed round, I I would say to any startup CEO who might be grousing about that, I would I would turn them back and say, well, you know, maybe there's a challenge with your story because the money is there. You, you need to work harder. Now, when you get to our stage, where we are, you know, right at around a Series A, uh, it is different. You know, The truth is, there just are not as many institutional investors who are going to write multiple, multiple million-dollar checks, which is where we are right now, as there are in other communities like Boston, New York, and, and Silicon Valley. The numbers are known. And so I think from that perspective, pittsburgh you know isn't as likely to churn out those series a and series b investments until you get to maybe a private equity level uh, which we're not at and that can be a challenge that being said again though i would say you know what if you've got a good company pittsburgh is a great place to incubate a company and if you can prove the 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 ma- if you can prove your business model here uh you can you know that scales anywhere and money will find you um uh, you know i was, I was recently talking to Glenn Meekham actually the CEO of, of Free Markets and I, and I asked him just a couple of days ago actually I asked him I said tell me the story again of the raise of Free Markets and how you went through 96 97 98 99 and, and eventually to IPO and he told me that story and, and what he told me you know what I remember from the conversation is that first of all you know a couple of notables one you know as a startup CEO it's a series of hard conversations you know, when you're really trying to figure it out. And so everybody needs to be up for that as a startup CEO. The second thing is money will find you if you're growing. And third is money will not find you if you're not growing. And so there's nothing about the Pittsburgh market that prevents the startup CEO from growing and uh, and prevents a a startup CEO from being successful. If you have a good idea, if you execute, you know, you can reach the global market from Pittsburgh. In fact, with our talent base, you can get there. Uh, but it is true that there are just not as many venture firms around here, which means you, you're going to have to get on a plane. You're going to have to go talk to some people. But the truth is, those people are gonna, t- going to invest if, if you've got a good story. So you can tell, I think, from my answer, uh, I just don't buy into that, um, that crutch. And that's what it feels like to me as someone who's kind of relatively new to this space. And um, uh, do you have to perform? Yeah, you got to perform. But you know what? Those Silicon Valley investors who are giving lots and lots of money to other, those companies out there, you know, the truth is those people are really smart. And and so are the people who are trying to make those companies work. And you might be able to show me an example of a startup or two that got funded because they were in that area. But my firm belief is that those folks are still investing in companies with viable ideas. Absolutely.
1: I always take it back to sports analogies, because that was basically all I consumed as a kid. And, you know, if you look at these, you know, big soccer federations, they'll find the kid in the most remote village with the great first touch. You got it. And that's because the stakes for a Manchester United, for a Chelsea, whatever large organization are so high that if they can find it, it's more than worth the investment to go uncover those opportunities. And when it comes to venture investing, that's the very nature of the job. So if the opportunity is there, if the quality and the potential in that relationship is there, it'll get uncovered. Yeah.
0: And Pittsburgh offers just a wonderful opportunity to differentiate yourself. You know, if you're in, if you're in the Valley Yes, you have access to all this capital, but you also have tremendously uh, large numbers of other entrepreneurs trying to do the same thing. Uh, in Pittsburgh, you're unique. They're just, the numbers aren't as high. And so if you have a good idea and you have a good execution model, there's no reason why you can't go ahead and raise that money. And um, that's what I would say.
1: And it's also, I mean, the Duolingo billboard that they put up right. in San Francisco. You, your developers can own homes and actually... That's
0: right. I think Duolingo is an excellent example. Fantastic.
1: Fantastic. Um, Kevin, I don't have much more here for the remainder of the interview. Before we get to our last two questions, is there anything you were hoping to share today or just other maybe pieces of wisdom that you can share before we let you go?
0: Sure. I think uh, two things. One on the legal sifter front, you know, we've, we've got something here uh, that frankly appeals to small businesses all the way up to global 500 organizations, uh, sole practitioners all the way up to global law firms. And we're proving that every single day. And uh, we've got a product that reads contracts and gives advice and, Every organization in the world negotiates contracts so we can help everyone. And we actually have uh, a pricing that's appropriate for small businesses all the way up to, to large businesses. And, and my other point on that is for the lawyers who might be listening to me right now, we have a, we have a, a way to partner with law firms. Uh, we actually, our, our pitch to law firms is put your advice inside of our software and resell it to your clients. And um, it'll be a way for you to expand your revenues, expand your margins, and your clients can access your brain through our AI 24-7, 365. As opposed to today, they have to call you up and wait for you to do a, a, some sort of a full service. So my message to, to uh, for people who might be interested in LegalSifter is check us out at LegalSifter.com. And I don't care if you're small, medium, or large. If you're negotiating contracts, we can help you out. And if you're a law firm, we can also help you out. Um, my other point, uh, my, my broader point is... Uh, you know, AI is a, a wonderfully uh, transformative technology, and uh, many people, and I think rightly so, are saying that the impact that AI will have on our lives for the next 10 or 15 years will trump any other technology that we've seen in, in the world um, to date, and I also think that's true. And so my, my message to the audience would be, hey, listen, you should probably be taking 10 or 15 minutes on some level of rhythm to keep yourself plugged into what's happening with artificial intelligence in your space, um, in your industry. And uh, it's not something to fall asleep on. It is something to monitor. It should be on your to-do list. You should understand in your industry what kind of an impact AI is starting to have and what it might have. And if for no other reason, so you can get ahead of some of the the larger ethical questions, some of the larger market dynamic questions, as well as look for opportunities for yourselves to leverage this technology to do things uh, different, better, um, et cetera. So I would put that in, you know, I would put that in your lexicon. This is not like, this is, e- this is beyond, you know, this is beyond cell phone technology. This is beyond, um, you know, the, the computer. It might even be beyond the, be the Internet's impact. We'll see. And so the more people, the more smart people that are engaged in the technology in general and understanding what's happening, the better.
1: I think another big idea just to build off of what you said is the notion that instead of it being categorized as this scary change or Mm -hmm. this like really dangerous change, Mm -hmm. is acknowledging that despite the fact that, you know, a company like LegalSifter is, is growing incredibly quickly and there's all these other startups in the AI space, is that even with that happening, change isn't happening in an instant it is Mm -hmm. you know 10 15 20 years of transformation and by having that fluency you can start to get ahead of the curve. When when I listened to some of the folks who were really at the front or the cutting edge of e-commerce or other forms of like internet selling, they were like, I thought Blockbuster was going to be out of business in two days. I thought that it was just going to be sweeping and then the change was going to be instant. And the reality is that there's still people walking into department stores 20 years later. And so very similarly, by gaining that fluency now and starting to even think about the implications of that technology is going to inform your career the same way that the different stepping stones informed your career as well.
0: I think that's well said.
1: Well, this has been fantastic. We're going to link to the website in the show notes. Any other digital coordinates that people should be aware of if they want to learn more, or connect with you, Kevin?
0: Yeah, you can check us out on Twitter uh, at LegalSifter or, and uh, you can check us out on LinkedIn as well as LegalSifter.com.
1: And the lawyers who may be listening are other folks who like to make referrals to check it out. The website's the best place to Absolutely. do that. Awesome. Um, well, like I said, we'll link that in the show notes. But as we do at the end of every interview, uh, we like to give the mic a final time to the guest to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. So I'm going to give it to you one more time.
0: Yeah. You know, take uh, 10, 15 minutes this week. And uh, do a Google search on artificial intelligence in your, in your chosen market or your chosen study, course of study, and make yourself aware of something that's happening in AI that perhaps you didn't understand uh, before you d- went out and did that research. And if nothing else, uh, it should pique your interest in a way that perhaps um, uh, you weren't piqued before.
1: Are there any applications outside of the law industry that you're mm-hmm. particularly excited by or interested in?
0: Yeah, you know, I think because we live in Pittsburgh, you're just wondering if they're going to really get there on the driverless cars. Uh, it's hard not to, it's it's hard not to get excited and and wonder about that. I I have particular interest because of my background. I I spent nine years at a safety company, and I happened to do some uh, pretty interesting work with the National Safety uh, Council uh, the Green Cross folks I was very very fortunate to be part of that organization just as someone who helped out and so I have a strong affinity for safety I have a strong affinity for uh, uh, don't text and drive uh, but but I but I but I'm fascinated by this I'm not educated but I am interested in and what's going to happen with driverless cars? Uh, are, are we going to get there? Are we going to get there safely? Are we going to get there in five years? We're we going to get there in 50. I think that's probably, you know, as a as a fan of the technology, but not an expert, it's interesting to see if that's going to happen.
1: And it's a crazy amount of money that some of these companies are spending. That's right. on it. We, we talked with Brian Selesky of Argo, and they're getting $200 million per <laughs> year for five years to make yeah. that happen. Just
0: It's a moonshot. Absolutely. It's a moonshot. So we'll see cool
1: uh well kevin this has been fantastic thank you so much for giving us some of your time
0: thank you so much thank you for having us
1: we just went deep with kevin miller hope everyone out there has a fantastic day Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Please hit that subscribe button if you've not already done so. If you are interested in other great interviews with Pittsburgh entrepreneurs, head on over to goingdeepwithaaron.com Pittsburgh to see all our conversations, including episode 314 with John Dick, the founder and CEO of Civic Science or earlier episodes with Luke Skirman of Niche.com, Henry Thorne of Four Moms, and many, many more. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.